Hello and welcome to another episode of James Bond and Friends. This is a podcast for you if you love James Bond and nerd out on all the history of the books and the films and all the trivia surrounding the franchise. For example, did you know that the IBM computers that Natalia orders from the Russian shop in 1995's GoldenEye had just four megabytes of memory? The only thing with less memory in the 1990s was Macaulay Culkin. <laughs> is this Jeopardy? Is this Jeopardy? Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying not to laugh. So this week we are talking about the women of the 80s to tie in with our latest issue of MI6 Confidential Magazine. And I am joined by Mark O'Connell, Shaw Longmore, Phil Nabil Jr. and Dr. Lisa Funnell. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Well, hi. I'll, yes, I'm Mark O'Connell, writer, author, bullet-catching uh, penman of Catching Bullets. But also, I'm really glad to be here because I'm a big 80s Bond fan and a big 80s Bond women fan as well. So I'm, I'm up for this one. I'll go. Um, this is Phil Nobile Jr., editor of Fangoria Magazine, contributor to MI6 Confidential. Big fan of women. <laughs> <laughs> and Bond women. Do you want to go, Sean? Oh, I go. Um, hello, I'm Sean Longmore. Um, I'm a graphic designer and I make pretty pictures and post them online and people tell me they're good sometimes. <laughs> All the time. And I'm Dr. Lisa Funnel. Uh, I'm the author of The Geographies, Genders and Geopolitics of James Bond with Klaus Dodds, editor of For His Eyes Only, The Women of James Bond and host of License to Critique, a podcast exploring gender in the world of James Bond and beyond. And I'm not only an 80s child myself, but I love Bond women, so I'm always up to chat about them. Awesome. So I thought I'd just like read our blurb from the intro of the magazine to kick us off, um, which goes something like this. Um, Starting with the crossbow-wielding Molina, set out on a mission of revenge, and ending with Pam's strong-willed CIA pilot, female characters of the 80s were far from the gun-arm-hanging damsels in distress the series had been criticized for in earlier decades. With shifts in pop culture and societal norms, casting the women for this era took on new dimensions. So with that, um, who wants to kick off with the first question, which is, are the films of the 80s underappreciated for their female characters in the series as a whole? Yes. Next question. Yes. <laughs> We're going to run right through these quickly. It's going to be extremely easy. Yes, absolutely. Of course they are. I think, in fact, most Bond girls of all eras are um, slightly overlooked because the, the uh, debate tends to take over. But, um, yeah, definitely the 80s ones. That's a yes from me. No, I'd have to agree 100%. I think that oftentimes just Bond films in general of the 1980s get overlooked. And I think we tend to lean on... I guess like the first decade or the first handful of films of each Bond actor, they tend to get a lot of our attention. And so I think more attention has been placed on um, the Roger Moore films of the 1970s and then oftentimes overlooking the women of the 1980s. And just I, I know that we're going to discuss this, but... I think it's important for us to talk about the fact that there's a range of roles for women in, in the 1980s and what it means to be heroic can actually be um, envisaged in, in different types of ways. So you have some women who are more emotionally strong. You have some women who are on a, uh, on, on a quest for, for vengeance. I love me a vengeful woman. So Melina Havelock, um, kudos to you. Um, and then there's some women who are just connected to their sense of purpose and are, are uh, you know, embodying these really sort of independent roles, uh, independent professional roles um, in different ways. So I think that there's a lot of diversity um, in terms of the women that we see and maybe they don't fall into more of um, 
sort of like the typical image that you get, say, of Bond women of the 1990s, that they're more action oriented. And so we do assume empowerment through physical action. But something that I always tell my students to question, we have to question even what it means to be heroic and why do we validate and valorize certain qualities or emphasize them over others. So I think that there's a lot here in the 1980s that we can really sink our teeth into and maybe hopefully uh, showcase to our listeners that, you know, there's 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 many ways to to be a heroic woman or be a protagonist um, or even a villain, Mayday's amazing, um, in the 1980s. So that's just my, my two cents. Mm-hmm. Do you think it was a reaction to somewhat of a vacuum in the 70s of strong female characters? Hmm. I think there are strong female characters in Bond. I mean, again, it gets overlooked when we talk about the, you know, the projected sexism and, you know, buttock slapping moments of bond which some of them i think it's a lot less than we would imagine but some of them don't sit so well and nor should they um but i think also we forget just as much as you know dink is getting you know literally flung away at the beginning of goldfinger and thunderball we've got fiona volpe who's a major Mm -hmm. international boss bitch you know not only is she coutured brilliantly but she's you know she's high up in spectre she's controlling the screen she's controlling bond as well um so i i yeah i think like that you can project that all onto the 80s for me the curious thing about the 80s bond girls to begin with are and i think it's partly because of roger moore's age but the first three bond girls of the 80s the leading women have have all got daddy issues or rather daddy's business issues. So the Havelocks, the Smythes, the Suttons, Bond or Roger Bond is almost sort of like a godparent figure to them. Yes, he steps over a line that godparents shouldn't really do with their uh, family (laughs) friends, but um, (laughs) but there's that sort of almost older uncle vibe. And I, even saying it right now doesn't sound right, but I think it's just perhaps slightly because of the ear and certainly because of Roger Moore and his hold and grasp of the character and the camera. It doesn't seem to matter so much, but that that's a definite uh, trope of the 80s bond, the first uh, three leading ladies. They're, they're sort of daddy issues, protecting their father's legacy, which we then later see obviously with Electric King and uh, probably other examples as well. And that's a common, uh, we refer to it in in sort of when we look at action film, films, I study heroic women, we call these explanatory narratives, justifications for women engaging in the space of physical action in heroic ways. And one of the most common, still today, one of the most common explanations is a connection to your father. And so there's legitimation for enacting violence through the paternal line that you're trying to either follow in his footsteps, you're, um, as you say, defending the legacy, you are avenging their death. Um, for some reason, we can understand women engaging in violent actions when it's connected to their father. It's, it's as if it legitimates them to have this place in the space in more of a male-dominated world. And so, so yeah, I can definitely see that, that connection. And then the question is, why then does it shift in the Dalton era? Because I, I'm trying to think, I mean, Cara Malovi, um, certainly her, her parents are not mentioned and neither with Pem Bouvier. So it's an interesting pivot away from that component um, in the late 1980s. But certainly I think you're right. It is this justification uh, that mm. is being brought forward in the early 1980s that is carried out and carried forward in so many other action films. Well, mm-hmm. listen, you wonder if, if Dalton just didn't get around to it because it took it took Daniel Craig four movies to have oh. his his love interest with the daddy issues. Um, mm-hmm. Dalton's Dalton's run was a little truncated, I think. But those films are very – I mean the, the three I cite uh, 
Fury's only octopus in a view to a kill. Those daddy issues, all those daddy legacy issues. The characters are taking, if we if we look at it in one way, they are taking their father's business interests and moving forward. Like, for example, Stacey Sutton's father can never uh, win or get round Max Orin. And uh, Octopussy is doing better things with the, her father's empire. Yes, she might be doing smuggling and slightly dodgy Cold War smuggling things, but she's she's doing what her father couldn't do. And likewise, the Havelocks, you know, it's it's mm-hmm. Bond and Melina that finally achieve what uh, Sir Timothy Havelock is unable to do, to not only um, to, to, uh, help uh, stop some of the Cold War, but also to uh, retrieve the attack. And I think that's a really brilliant point that is not necessarily highlighted. It's not simply taking up their father's legacy, mm. but it's taking it a step further. And, and as you you rightly mention, doing the things that their fathers cannot manage to do. So I think that's a really brilliant point, And I'm glad you raised that. I mean, yeah. And you could also, I'm, I'm just going off on a daddy issue thing, which is not a line I often say. But um, you could, I mean, <laughs> you look at uh, Cara Malovi. She's got that slightly, you know, the benefactor of... Um, of mm. uh, your own Crabbe and Brad Whitaker. There's, I mean, yes, it's men pulling her strings a little bit. We we can read that. And you, likewise, with License to Kill, uh, Pam Bouvier's slight, I wouldn't say she's overshadowed or dominated by Felix, but, she, you know, there's an older figure in her life as well. So maybe we could tentatively say there's a daddy issue on all of those main leading ladies. Um, but yeah, like like you say, it's not as as easy and as... As, as sexist and as put in your place as we would think. And I think you can apply that to any look at gender and representation of Bond. So the um, the Bond actor changed, but the writers largely stayed the same through that tenure, right? So that was – it wasn't a change of writers that brought that about. It was definitely the recasting of Bond mm-hmm. with the younger, younger look on it. So, Sean, you put um, the wonderful cover art together for us on our last issue. Oh, yes, um, thank you. How did you go about picking out the icons from the decade and did uh, you spot any of these kind of traits? I, I, th- I think that the rule I initially started with was strictly no bikinis. Um, I okay. was, wanted to celebrate women's character rather than their bodies in that sense. Um, and it was also a case of, I think I think I nearly put all of them on there I tried to get in as many as possible um, and then putting the ones that almost had that sense of power at the front and that sense of leadership. So that's why Octopussy is front of centre is, um, yes, she's a character with daddy issues, but then she also kind of has that maternal thing over the group of women that she mm-hmm. leads. Mm. And so that just felt like naturally right and like a natural thing to put together. What was... Um... What would you say your favourite character of the female character of the eighties was, Sean? We'll go around the table. <laughs> um, I, I, I flip. You get to go first since you're the newbie. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I flip between them all, uh, but I really, really love, and I think she's really underappreciated. I love Talisa Soto. Mm. She's absolutely fantastic in *License to Kill* in a sense that. Um, she actually gets quite a well-driven character arc. She finishes the film in a very different place as where she stands. When you contrast that with, say, Pam Bouvier, she's a really strong character throughout, and she's a really leading presence all the way through the film um, from the minute you meet her. Um, but Talisa Soto is sort of like... Um, there's a progression of her sort of reclaiming power 
Um, a lot of the film revolves around her having power over men within that film, even if it doesn't seem like that straight away. Like she has power over Sanchez, even though it's yeah. it's not a good thing. It's not a good situation for her, but mm-hmm. she's able to like push him over that edge. And it's kind of like her escape. And then by the end of it, she's sort of in the same position Sanchez was. She's got all this money, or you assume he ha- she has. Um, and so I, I really like that journey that she goes on. Are we assuming that she inherits the house? I, I, the I, would, the I would assume so, since she inherits the iguana. I think that's kind of like a, a symbol of that. You know? <laughs> um, and there's a sort of confidence in that final scene that she has that she's not had through the rest of the film. Um, you, there's a lot of scenes earlier where she's very dependent on, she's looking on James Bond almost as a sort of escape. And at one point she says she loves him. And you're like, well, no, you don't. Not really. You love the idea that you can escape this situation like anybody would. Um, mm. And and then by the end, she's she's almost come to light as her own character. And as much as I do, I love, I love Carrie Lowell. I love Pam Bouvier. She's great, but she's always, she is a badass woman when you meet her and she's a mm-hmm. badass woman by the end of the film. And Talisa Soto in Licence to Kill, she's actually the only uh, female in the whole film who's allowed to be Latino. She's allowed to have some right. uh, sort of Mexican heritage because everyone else, you know, is either Japanese or American or, or shipped in for different reasons. So she kind of, as well as reminding the audience where we're meant to be set, uh, I, I think, yeah, I, I, I actually always like Talisa Soto um, a lot. And that red dress is amazing. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, her costuming throughout that entire film is 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 on point. I just have to throw that in. Like she is probably one of the best dressed women who can pull off any sort of color, any right. sort of style. Like, I mean, she looks so elegant, even though she's playing um, a character who is being abused uh, by her partner. She's also somebody who holds herself with with a lot of dignity, and it's something that shows through her costuming. That's a, that's a mean feat, considering it's in the eighties. And yeah, yeah. When she comes in in that red dress, like all the power of that scene sort of shifts to her, um, and that's something you learn as an actor. I, I I studied acting at university, and that's something you learn is how to is who's got the power at what moments when you're playing a scene, um, and you can tell that it kind of in the script it's possibly not written like that. You could read those lines, you could read her lines throughout, and see her as quite a almost disadvantaged the whole way through and there's no growth. But I think she as an actress sort of adds another level to that. You can tell she's really sat down and thought about how to command those lines and command that power in the scenes. Well, yeah, my pick has to be and will always be forever and ever is uh, Maud Adams as Octopussy because that was, I mean, uh, I've said it more than once. Octopussy was the first Bond film I ever saw begrudgingly and I still don't know why 87 that film has just got into my skin dna and very sense of being and it was partly Maud as well i remember being more obsessed by Maud adams than roger moore upon that, within that sort of first viewing experience uh and i think I, there's lots of reasons why i like Maud. um she's slightly older there's you can slightly believe the age that that she has with roger so there's a slight autumnal i, I call it like an out of india out of Africa vibe about it. She holds herself like Lauren Bacall. Yes, she's mm-hmm. in charge of these kick-ass uh, women uh, who were uh, led by um, Suzanne Dando, who's a British gymnast who did quite well and then came and choreographed all of that. And whilst the women of Octopussy 
are perhaps the least ethnically uh, accurate. Yeah, you know, those. I mean, in fact, the women that would normally be outside uh, Octopus's palace trying to lure the guards were often transsexual women because they were they have a different status in India and a, and a, and a different role. Um, but I, I I love Maud. I think she's a great ambassador for Bond. Um, she's been in two Bond films, not three, despite the uh, trivia cards mm-hmm. thinking otherwise. Uh, I've, I'm very biased as well. I've I've been able to I, I count Maud as someone I can say uh, hello to on her on the phone, and we've had um, good times in LA. Um, so definitely Maud Adams. Yeah, and she, and she's also extremely unassuming and doesn't she's almost embarrassed people would want to know about her time on Bond. And I think, you know, Roger Moore famously cites her as, as his strongest, best leading actress. So, um, more definitely more all the way. And I, and I love Sean. I love the imagery that she's slap bang in the middle. That is, you've, you've, you've got me on Maud. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It, it just felt, it felt incredibly natural. Um, I'm interested to hear what you guys think of how they frame Octopussy to begin with as, an antagonist and as a sort of as a criminal, which is something you don't really see um, in Bond when it's with women. It's almost like women aren't allowed to be bad guys, aren't allowed to be criminals. Um, how do you guys feel about that? I think it's really interesting that she is framed in like she's sort of shrouded in mystery. So we don't see her. We see her as she's putting, um, I love octopusy too. So we see her as she's feeding her her little octopus and we see her fingers. And that's the only sort of dynamic that we get. And that reminds me so much of early introduction. So um, uh, Sean Connery as James Bond, we see his hands, we see his silhouette. Only later do, well, later as in like 30 seconds later, do we see who he is? The same thing with Blofeld, right? Like we we don't see who he is. And so there, I love this idea of introducing um, characters and shrouding them in mystery. And, and I think she is uh, initially presented as being potentially villainous. And we see Kamal Khan and his relationship with her where he is responding to her. Um, and so I think it's interesting to have this shift from being a villain to being an ally um, and having that autonomy to be able to make that decision for yourself where you seem to fall. Whereas, you know, she's not working for anybody. She's not simply a hench person who's, who's siding with her boss. She is the boss and she gets to make that her own decision. And I think that is something that I've always appreciated about her. And when I think about her character, I, I can't help but think of man with the golden gun and her performance there, which I think her performance is great, but her character is is so marginalized and is abused and is killed off um, once she um, goes against Scaramanga, once she violates his trust. And so to go from that type of representation to then being presented as being a strong entrepreneurial woman who, as as you have, have mentioned, you know, she's not just there um, doing her own thing. She's leading other women. And these women are oftentimes her age or younger, teaching them how to be independent women as well. And there's something that I've always connected with in the movie that is so strong. I mean, think about it. It's 1983. I'm growing up during this era. I have Princess Leia and I have Octopussy, right? And there's something so so empowering about being a young girl watching this and being like, yeah, I can do that too. And so there is such value and such productive value in having Maude Adams play this, but play a woman who is, is not as young 
young as the other women who are featured in the series. There's something so important about having women in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s having these narratives um, and, and being able to embody these types of roles, especially in such a big franchise like James Bond. And she's the last leading lady until um, uh, Vesper, Vesper and Eva Green. She's the last one that's with proper Fleming connections. I know it's slightly embellished from the book, but I, I, I think that's important as well, those literary connections, which, you, you can, which also frame Melina uh, in, in the previous film. Um, so, yeah, I think that brings a lot to the, the aura of Octopus. One thing I like, just a final word to let others have a moment. I love that uh, Octopus in the film is hidden by women initially. There's like a whole entourage and pecking order of women. And I, it's almost like the, the Russian um, doll that trying to get to the core of who's running all that. And I, I would love to see a Bond from trying to do that a little bit more. You mentioned the introduction of Octopus, Elisa. I, I always got callbacks and i don't know if it was a deliberate decision the filmmakers where she's seen feeding the octopus and waving a finger kind of thing to instructions as blofeld mm. in from russia with love yeah. with his fighting fish and i think given that in the previous film they quote unquote killed blofeld down the chimney mm. i took this as like hey fans here's the new big villain kind of a misdirection when they introduce her Interesting. I didn't think yeah, about it. Wasn't, it. I think Spectre, well, in the 80s, Spectre was going to come back in every Bond film, but they did toy with bringing Spectre and having Spectre as part of the Octopussy narrative until perhaps uh, a chimney in Beckton um, made them yeah. think otherwise. And then we had to wait for EA to bring back Octopush. <laughs> I love, I was, I've read not that long ago that the character, there was uh, an initial idea or initial draft that she was called Octo- October Debussy. And I'm like, if, yeah. if I ever do drag, yeah. I am calling myself October Debussy. I, I love yeah. that. And there's the Sybil Danning interview where she says that the plot was going to be around a computer called OctoPC. Oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's interesting you mentioned that first shot being like Blofeld. Could that have been, do we, do we think possibly it might have been on people's minds that they were doing Never Say Never Again at the same time? So could that have been a deliberate way sort of playing up to that audience expectation? Oh, hadn't thought about that. Uh, I'll, just to throw my thoughts on Maude Adams there, I'm, I was late to the Maude Adams party, but like as a grown old man, I have on a recent rewatch have really come to appreciate having just a mature woman at the center of the thing. Uh, Certainly, in the context of Roger Moore having younger younger women um, mm-hmm. on either side of that, so it was really refreshing to see her just sort of like just this confident, mature, and no less devastatingly beautiful woman uh, at the center of the thing. Uh, and I'm not even a giant fan of Octopussy as a film, but uh, it certainly stood out on recent rewatches that 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 they were doing something new and exciting in that space in 1983, which was cool. But on the 1983 tip, how quickly will you kick me off this podcast if I say Barbara Carrera as one of my favorite 80s? Oh, no, that's fine. Um, Because I do think that she brings a flavor that you do not see otherwise in the decade of really over-the-top campy villain uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the the female characters of the franchise. And on a recent rewatch, I was just really taken with Barbara Carrera just chewing the scenery and going for it in a very big sort of kind of outdated way maybe for 83. But um, it was a lot of fun to watch. If you can, there's um, some, some of you probably already know this, but there's a there was a sitcom called That Seventies Show, and they do an episode, and Tanya Roberts plays the mum in it. And right. I think she's getting remarried in an episode, and she she brings some old g- girls back from her past, and it's Maud Adams and Barbara Carrera, <laughs> and the three of them in sort of early nineties sitcom land is kind of 
bizarre and brilliant at the same time and a little bit icky but um yeah it's out there it's very findable on the the tube of you awesome um, on, 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 sorry, on Fatima Blush, I just wondered, is there anything to note there on how she's kind of one of the few Bond girls that's almost allowed to be um, sort of very sexually active? She's not presented mm-hmm. as someone who's innocent or really sort of like the line Fiona Volpe gives James Bond about him coming and making women sing, sing an angelic choir that's kind of turned on its head a bit there and sure she's, she's permitted almost to be as sexual as james bond in a way that very few of the other bond girls are yeah yeah i, I would almost say that xenia is a spin on yeah. Fiona, uh, a, a, a spin oh, on gosh. fatima what was what was the tweet someone someone sent to me said that fatima blush Blew up so Xenia on the top could be crushed or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, you know, yeah, that 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 line that lineage is very clear, I think, um, and and it's it's otherwise absent in the eighties, which is why I bring it up. Lynn Holly Johnson is not bringing that energy, <laughs> right. but Jill Bennett is. No, no, no. <laughs> but I also think Fatima Blush is. You know, one of the most memorable women, and I love villainous women, and I love women who are over the top. And so, like, in the 80s, we have Fatima Blush and we have Mayday. And, you know, both these women are, and, and, and we've talked on this podcast, you know, that that um, maybe the decision to go with Mayday and, and to have her be larger than life was supported by having Fatima Blush be larger than life in terms mm. of her costuming, in terms of her mannerisms, in terms of... Um, uh, really sort of claiming the way that Fiona Volpe did that liberal sexuality um, and, and that idea of taking pleasure, but also boasting about your sexuality. Um, I think that, you know, I think these women, both of these women are, are quite memorable in that way. And I, and I, I love villainous women. I find them to be more delicious because sure. they're, they're really transgressing. They're pushing the boundaries. They're occupying a different type of space and sure they're all going to die because it's a bond film. Right. And this is what we expect, but I, I kind of like the fact that they get to push those lines and push those boundaries and they make the films more interesting. And it's why I always advocate for more villainous women in, in, in Bond films because they are able to provide a different type of transgression that is always interesting and that can be incredibly uh, satisfying to watch. I think Irma Bunt's the only bad quote-unquote Bond girl to survive, right? Mm-hmm. Female villain. Right, yeah, the franchise. Yeah. So um, on your podcast, Lisa, you talked about Mayday and kind of the split. I, I don't. You, do you want to bring in like how is how is she framed in the film and the issues with it? Because I don't want to put words in your mouth, and you do a far better job of explaining it than I would. Oh, well, that's very kind of you to say. Um, so the thing with Mayday, Mayday is a very interesting figure in that. On the one hand, she's presented with a lot of strength and a lot of autonomy, but at the same time, there are a lot of stereotypes that inform her representation. And so she is almost like this, this mediation of different binaries. She's she's hard and she's soft. She's masculine and she's feminine. But at the same time, they tend to pull in some racial and or racist stereotypes into her representation. So she's animalistic at the same time. She's hypersexed at the same time. She's presented as being amoral. And so they're 
you're pulling from, you know, an entire um, uh, sort of stock of, of stereotypes for her representation. And so it's kind of a mixed bag with her because I do believe that Grace Jones had a lot of say in terms of like the imagery um, and, and of course, in terms of the performance, but it still at the same time definitely draws from these stereotypes. And I find her character interesting because, you know, when we were talking about um, Octopussy going from being, you know, potential villain, I'm not sure how villainous she is at the beginning, but really siding uh, to go for good in the next film. That's really Mayday's journey where she is working with and for Zoran. And after he betrays her, she gets pissed off. She sees her friends, uh, Jenny Flex, um, uh, passing by her and has this emotional reaction um, to her friend to her friend dying. And so she decides, well, if Zorn screwed me over, I'm going to screw over his plans. And she is the one who sacrifices her life to do it. Bond stays back. She holds that break and, and goes out and explodes in a very sort of dramatic fashion. Like when we talk about villains dying and different types of death, she's the only woman villain to die in a Bond film on her own terms. She makes that choice. She makes that decision. Mm. And so it's it's a really interesting character because, you know, do the means justify the ends? And my answer is no. Um, I think that there are, there's some problems along the way. But also at the same time, there is a lot of capacity and autonomy that is being represented at the end of the film. And just to sort of add to this idea, it's something I've been thinking about. You know, there's a lot of tag teaming that goes on in these Bond films when you have more than one woman in a lead role. Um, and it's something I'm still trying to, you know, wrap my head around. So you have Octopussy and Magda, who are both playing different parts where the the ability to have Octopussy remain hidden and then have a big reveal is because Magda's in the forefront, right? And then the two of them sort of switch roles, they tag team it. Um, I think that there's a lot going on with Stacey Sutton and Mayday, or even Mayday and uh, the two women who are part of her group. There's a lot of collaboration um, going on in, in there. And then when I think about License to Kill, you do have two women um, who are really flanking Bond through this entire film. And we're not sure who's going to be the love interest at the end. And so one thing that I'm going to end up writing about now that I'm talking about it um, is probably going to be the fact that when we have more than one woman in a lead role, that it creates just different types of layering and that it allows for a little bit of an expansion from the typical Bond girl archetype because you can have different women playing different roles in different parts. Um, so yeah, there's just, a, there's a lot in there, but I think it really is happening like in the 19, 1980s, a lot of tag yeah. teaming. Is it interesting in the way the eighties? You know, it's very, it's been written about everywhere, but the idea that he couldn't be as promiscuous because of the AIDS thing you know, they wanted to sort of dial that down. And I don't know what circles you guys are running in social media, but I, I noticed that in younger generations, the idea of like polyamory is coming back in a big way. And mm -hmm. and is there is there a world where Bond's sort of uh, promiscuousness, I guess, gets sort of reimagined as something more progressive slash acceptable in that space rather than the, this sort of Puritan knee-jerk idea that he had to be borderline monogamous by the time you got to Tim Timothy Dalton, right? I think that'll be a new actor's era, right? I mean, I can't... Oh, yeah, we might even be dead by then. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> the new James Bond hasn't been born yet. Yeah. But the Grace great. Jones tip, you know, Lisa makes so many great points about her character arc and whatnot, but I feel like it's all so undercut by this sort of... Uh, exploitative gaze that they put on her otherness they they mm -hmm. sort of they take away her humanity uh just by sort of this 
leering nature of how different she is just on a base level of, of the, I, the figure she cuts and her presence is so different and exploited in a way that is maybe not the most progressive uh, take in the world. I, I, I don't think it helps that her introduction is by Bond and Tibbet peering at her through binoculars mm. and talking about vitamins and vitamins. I don't think that's right. That kind of fra- frames that the whole problems with how that character is portrayed. Yeah, in that one scene. Source. And yeah, the fact the, that there yeah. are no other women of color um, and black women in particular who are playing major roles in that film, or there, there's just a lack of black characters in that film. And so she does stand out against, you know, the sea of white figures. Sure. Um, and so there's like that, that other element is being, is being sort of put forward and highlighted. Sorry, Mark, but, I didn't mean to catch off. No, no, but is, or no, to add, isn't she meant to though? I mean, it's, I always say Zorin and Mayday are like ebony and ivory, um, literally. And they, I think I, I get the animalistic, the sort of grunts and the, that sort of jungle behavior that Mayday has sometimes is a little strange, especially when they're kickboxing. Even as a kid, I remember watching that clip on the, on the uh, promo shows and the kickboxing scene. And I'm like, why is she grunting? Why is she still? But then we've got to remember that the character is a, a Nazi genetic experiment. And both mm-hmm. of them are. And the whole idea, actually, that Grace, if we're going to look at it sort of historically and genetically in terms of World War II Nazi uh, eugenics that she was clearly a mistake that they kept because and that's not to explain how she's presented on screen but she, you know, the idea of a um of a of a black child in the 40s in that Aryan context that we're presented with i imagine not many of them made it not many of the experiments which is how the film presents it i hate that sort of word and phrasing but that's how the film presents it to us and i think that she she's held up as exotic but i also think and this is where Sometimes the representation and interpretation of, of Bond actresses, I think, needs to sit alongside their casting as well. So mm. she is not just made a girlfriend muse of, of Maximilian Zorin. She is Grace Jones, this mm-hmm. Andy Warhol muse who has um, been f- uh, photographed by all the major uh, fashion photographers. She's a pop art icon. I th- I'm sure um, Andy Warhol did her as well as Liza and Marilyn uh, on canvas. Um, and she, you know, she was most famous for in the run up to the bomb film for sort of uh, karate chopping a, a TV chat show host. And so <laughs> it, the, that slight aggression that Mayday has is more. I wouldn't say so much it's the, the story in the film shortchanging her. And it's actually more of that Grace Jones energy. And yes, she, she, I mean, I, I, I heard make, uh, Grace Jones was a, uh, you know, a challenging co-star, put it that way on the film. And uh, I believe Barbara Broccoli sort of uh, tried to steer and commandeer Grace Jones, who didn't understand the idea of an 8am or 5am studio call and a, car pickup um and i believe my grandfather had to pick her up once but he never did it again that's what i'm saying so but (laughs) she so she brings all this sort of mid-80s pop art stuff as well as well as like azadine aliar the uh designer that did all the costumes it wasn't strictly emma porteous who did the costumes for her and then also um i think one or two of the hats are philip tracy and gautier as well that doesn't always get credited. So, so to sort of defend the presentation of Maida, I, I think it's it's also a lot, of, a hell of a lot of Grace Jones in that more than perhaps any '80s Bond um, uh, leading lady or any lady. Uh, she's the one that where basically, if you hire Grace Jones, you're going to get 90% Grace Jones and 10% Maida. Yeah, and I oftentimes think that they took her persona almost wholesale 
in many ways yeah. and like threw it in the film and they're like, now what do we do with her? That <laughs> poster is progressive. I mean, uh, it, you know, mid 80s, Roger Moore and Grace Jones back to back. That is yeah. a brilliant image for me and not just because I'm a bias Bond fan, but that is up there with, you know, Marty McFly checking his watch and Axel Foley sat on the bonnet of a car. It is up there. And that, if, you know, even in mid 80s, that was a slightly bolder image. I don't know what Sean thinks of that because he's, he's got more sort of experience of the uh, yeah, poster. I've, I've, presentation of these uh, characters yeah sorry i'm probably going to bring up posters a lot um um but the, i was thinking about this earlier that i is that is um grace jones on the view to the back-to-back one is that the first time that a leading lady gets pretty much equal billing in terms of how they're presented on the main film poster I can't think of any it, examples. Well, earlier. Barbara Back is sort of alongside Roger Moore, but she's slightly stooped with mm. yeah, you know, you can probably look at it in terms of uh, coding and um, say, mm, maybe that's a good point, Sean. Yeah, um, I, I think, I'm trying to go through them all now. and look. Well, <laughs> they leaned into Maud Adams a bit in 83, I think. But I think it's interesting that no, like, I mean, maybe there's one Golden Gate poster, but like Grace Jones is the co-star of every one of those ad campaigns in that movie mm-hmm. it's a good yeah, point even at the term where the, when you see the landscape presentation of the golden gate poster it's sort of inset in on behind that larger image of roger moore and grace jones back to back i mm. don't i don't i don't know pe- people out there probably know more than me but i don't think i've ever seen a a version of that that is landscape that's not had that's not also got grace jones on there as well mm-hmm. um, there's a definitely a, definitely a certain confidence about how they present her in the marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's that's present in all of the 80s Bond film posters, maybe less so in Licence to Kill. Um, and again, it comes to this thing of how they present women um, having a position of power over Bond. Mm. Uh, and that starts with that For Your Eyes Only poster. Um, and in many, in many ways, it's not great that the, the image of the legs and then Bond being very small but then you are saying, suddenly saying, here's a woman who is going to have more power than Bond in this film. And then you see that again in Octopussy. You can see that Octopussy has control over Bond in that image. Then back to back with Mayday in View to a Kill. And then in The Living Daylights, it's again, it's kind of a reprise of the Fior Eyes Only with, um, with Kara's leg. And then again, Bond yeah. very small in the background. And then License to Kill is a bit of an oddity because all the marketing was very... Very different yeah. for that, and, um, and they didn't run with what they wanted to in the end anyway. So, mm-hmm. I think we probably discount that one. I think it's always very, it's very interesting. And when you compare the Bond film posters to other film franchises of the eighties, um, particularly I suppose Star Wars was, was massive, um, but even there, Princess Leia is built in sort of the illustration below Luke Skywalker and Han Solo. Um, I. I can't think of, besides possibly Aliens, where there is any other big film franchises that were that confident in their female leads to put them like, as they did with Grace Jones. Mm. Yeah. I would be careful, though, when we talk about um, the strength of women in film when they're either fragmented, so we only see the legs in... 
um, for your eyes only. And it's pretty much legs and a bunch of butt um, in a very sort of sexualized position, even though she's carrying the crossbow. And even though that image never actually shows up in the film in, in any way, shape or form, um, to me, and, and maybe it's just being a woman looking at this. Yes, there's power dynamics, but I see it as being like a very sexualized image that doesn't actually fully match the content of the film. And then I think about Grace Jones. And yes, I think that she looks amazing in, in, in the art form back to back with James Bond. And but at the same time, he still gets to wear his tuxedo. He's fully dressed. He has his gun and her body is placed on display in that sort of 80 style workout onesie, whatever we want to call it. But her entire body and its muscularity is being put on display and she's wearing heels and she's smoking a cigarette. And and I mean, it is representing the fact that she's a physical and sexual threat to James Bond. But there's also the other component that comes in um, that it is still relying on objectification. And, and a lot of these posters do rely on the bodies of women, just like the title credits do um, in order to lead viewers in and, and, and emphasize, say, the sexuality of Bond and his desirability and all the women that he gets to, to be with. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not against showcasing beautiful women. I'm not against women wearing bathing suits. Um, but sometimes the way that they're presented and the types of gazing that is being encouraged might actually detract from, say, the strength of their characters and the things that they do. Um, and oftentimes in movie posters for, for women in action um, and, and in various countries as well, I'm thinking of a lot of like Hong Kong action films, there's like the cover images don't always match like the way that women are actually represented in, in the films. And there's a lot of stuff that happens that comes into the 1990s um, that I think has its roots in, in the James Bond film where women then go do extra textural promotional shoots and they wear less clothing in those shoots. Um, and and they're, they're, they're more sexualized in those shoots than oftentimes they are in the films themselves. And so there's almost like a, like a, like a, like a separation between the text proper and these extra textual materials. But it's hard for us as a viewer to separate them. We just kind mm. of collapse them in our own mind, thinking that, you know, the images that we see, say through Playboy or through men's magazines or through promotional shoots in fashion magazines, that those images that are, stemming from the film through the through the performers being shot outside of the film are then we, we take those images and we sort of like in our in our in our own mind connect them with the characters that we see within the film I'm, so the objectification thing is you're absolutely of course of course but and i and i understand i do i can see that in the of you to kill poster where the two of them are back to back but again also for me it's as much about grace jones who never wore much many clothes mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. still doesn't and she's the only person that sort of hula hoops near naked outside buckingham palace and got away with it uh she's <laughs> one of the guest artists for the queen's jubilee um and then she she turns up naked and not just back in her you know early heyday but even now with the keith herring symbolism and the emblems there so i i'm, I'm as i say I, I think there's always other cultural moments sort of cultural beats that are feeding into a discussion particularly of gender and, and bond and for me that that mayday moment is as, as i say uh, is as much Grace Jones and her artistry, which is a very strong sense of artistry. There's nothing passive about Grace Jones. I think maybe we can agree on that. <laughs> Talking about the posters and the female representation being equal, I think it wasn't until Die Another Day, I've got to mention every podcast, that we got that equal, <laughs> bill, equal billing again. Yeah, I, 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 I can't think of it. And even then, after that, we've not had 
it's there in Quantum Solace, and then we've not had it since. Um, right. There was one poster. Uh, I think it maybe was the Mexican poster for Spectre had had Madeline doing that back to back thing yeah. with with Bond, but not certainly not in the uh, the U.S. campaign. Uh, uh, I, it is a question, and it's a bigger one. But do you, Sean and Lisa, do we feel that there is this disparity of gender representation in movie posters today? Not not just Bond, but I mean, I know it's a different art. I, I defend actually it's still an art. It's just done differently and, and displayed differently. Um, and Sean particularly has proved that in recent, in recent months. But do we, is there, st- I'm, I'm, just, I'm genuinely asking, I'm, I'm sort of less sure what, my answer, what the answer is. Do we feel there's still that pedestaling objectification of women in movie posters and promos? Um, I think it's, it's, def- it's definitely still there, I would personally mm-hmm. say. Um, I think... Where, as ever with these things, there is it seems to be more, and maybe this is a comment on wider society, there's more an expectation for women to be well presented on mm. posters. Um, for example, uh, the a lot of the Quantum of Solace marketing, you see Bond looking beat up, he's he's cut, he's looking he's looking damaged, whereas oh, women still today in film and in film marketing have to, mm-hmm. they have to look beautiful, they have to, they're made, you couldn't I, I can't think of any large film posters, for example, that put their leading female character front and centre without makeup on. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, absolutely, I think it's still there. A friend of a friend who I've, I've sort of met online a bit, um, I can't remember her surname, but her first name's Diane, and she designed the teaser posters for a lot of the Brosnans, like the the ice with the, uh, the gun melting through the ice. Mm. Um, and I have seen some of her different imagery that got, refused or uh, uh, rejected for um well for all the problems that she worked on and my god it, it i love it but i was so glad to see a woman doing that sort of imagery that is so sexually risque in both directions all i will say is the 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 triangle of a martini glass matches a part you know a, a part on a uh, female anatomy according to this female artist and i loved seeing because often it's always these male, uh, you know, these guys producing these poster artworks, whether it's today or in the past. And I, I, I mean, that's something maybe for another discussion. But the role of uh, women artists in in posters and movies, and I'm glad that Bond slightly has had a little bit of history of um, female graphics. Yeah, Absolutely. and in terms of oh, sorry, go ahead. No, John. no, no, sorry, Lisa. I'm sorry. Please, please. Go no, ahead. no, no. This, this is your area of specialization. <laughs> you uh, no, go. sorry. I was, I was, I was just going to say <laughs> it's. Um, it's much more trivial than that. That just the the image of um, um, a martini glass matching a woman's figure. That's in the title sequence for Living Daylights. No, I, I'm I'm the martini glass. <laughs> a little low, yeah, the martini glass was a little lower than the one in Daylights. <laughs> and I was looking. Oh my god, that's amazing! But I can utterly see why it got slightly looked over that time round. In terms of just general uh, uh, movie posters, I think it depends on the franchise, the series that's being done, and the role of women in those films. So I'm teaching a course on female heroism in Hollywood, and I tend to just sort of, um, on my Instagram, the films that we watch for the week, I just put the posters up. And I do get have an opportunity simply to look through, and I try to find posters that showcase the women who we're talking about um, and showcase the title. And usually I can use the, the main ones, can I fit it on Instagram is basically my, my biggest concern. 
Hmm. And for the most part, when women are presented in these action-oriented roles, going back from aliens all the way through to Black Panther, um, I've seen so many images where women, um, they, they don't tend to be dirty. So I think that that maybe Thelma and Louise, you might get a little bit just because they're they're representing them um, after they've taken the hat from the trucker after a long journey. But for the most part, these women do look like they have been that they have proper hygiene. Um, but rarely do you see women being beat up in any way, shape or form. And these women are also not being, you know, really objectified because they are playing um, heroic roles when women tend to play more secondary figures or if they're part of a heroic collective. I think things tend to shift a little. But I think it is something that I've raised on this podcast a few times. When we see characters who are engaging in action, I'd say more recently, do we see, say, sweat and dirt? Um, mm-hmm. I like to see, like, if you're running, if you're fighting, like, I kind of want to see a little bit of dirt. I kind of want to see some sweat. You know, if you get punched in the face, I expect to see some blood. And 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 and, and the graphics that we see within the films have changed a, a lot over time. So, you know, we, we've talked about how certain James Bonds don't really bleed that much. If you're fighting somebody in a, in a glass place and, and there's a lot of flips and twists and stuff like nobody's bleeding, you know, but that's, that's something that happened in the 1970s. There were different codes and conventions versus today, you would probably have like a lot of blood. But when we talk about women, very often, we don't see women being, that was my dog agreeing, women being as battered and bruised, even when they take on these iconic roles. And when you do see it, it oftentimes brings up different ideas and different notions of, say, say female victimization. And I think when we look at some of the shifts and the pivots that we're seeing right now with, with a film like Atomic Blonde, where Charlize Theron's character goes through a lot of physical trauma. She is definitely invested in the action. You have these very long takes where we can see Charlize Theron doing the type of action and doing the stunt work. Um, And these are brutal sequences. And in that film, we definitely see her body in ice coming out of the ice, which should be sort of the sexualized image, a woman in the bath. But she comes out and her body is just, you can see the bruises and the cuts everywhere and her face looks bruised and cut up. And then she utilizes fashion to mask it. And yet in the poster for that film, you don't see this body that has gone through this trauma. You see the fashion elements. Um, She always looks incredibly polished on any version that I've seen. And so... You know, it is it is a question of, you know, seeing Bond dirty. That's also (laughs) away from Bond's classical image um, on on these posters. So seeing Bond dirty, I think more roots Daniel Craig's Bond in a, a broader history of action cinema that is relying on. You know, that's more body based. And I, and I see I see this as being shifting codes and conventions of, of, of more like Hollywood action heroism. But it's interesting that, you know, women are not being presented to the same degree um, and not, not just in the Bond films, uh, in the Bond films proper or on 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 these posters, but just in general in film posters still don't reflect women mm-hmm. engaging in, in sort of the space of physical action and possibly because of the way that we have historically seen these types of images. When I think of images with women with bruising on their face, I think about intimate partner violence and PSAs that you see and and posters of women who have been victims of abuse. That's the image that I see. And we don't have anything really in our culture to offer a counter narrative of women who tend to fight or tend to box, you know, um, where bruises represent a different type of, of engagement. So and I think although, although the two women, the two uh, gypsy fighting ladies in From Russia With Love certainly went for it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I remember right. right this year. 
Running parallel to Atomic Blonde, though, there's there's a movie uh, by Karen Kasama called Destroyer, and and the poster is very much Nicole Kidman. Uh, and the point of that poster is to show you how unglamorous Nicole Kidman looks in this movie because she's this grizzled cop, and and she's probably got prosthetic makeup on to look less glamorous at this point, almost almost like Charlize did in Monster. Yeah. Um, but then it becomes a question of like, well. We, we need to convince the people that might, may or may not pull the trigger on that Netflix poster that, that you're, what are you going to get? You know, it, and, mm-hmm. and, and Atomic Blonde wants to sell you glamorous Charlize, whereas Destroyer wants you to sort of, you know, wants uh, for your consideration, Nicole Kidman as best actress. And, and so it, we've, we've weirdly coded like a, a banged up or an unglamorous look for women as being, you know, like a, uh, capital S, capital P, serious performance, and we and we mm. can't go, you know, we can't sell you escapism unless their you know, their lip gloss is still intact. Yeah. So the the exception to prove the rule, um, Terminator Dark Fate. I think she still looks great on that poster. <laughs> oh, yeah, they do, they do, but they're, they're shown to be in action and slightly beat up, and you know, and they're prominent in the poster campaign, whereas Arnie's in the background. But um, yeah. And the other one I thought of when you're talking about this was the rhythm section. <laughs> but only five people saw that movie. That's right. More people saw the post movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, they don't present a glamorous image. Right. Yeah, but I think that goes back to your serious performance. I, I, th- I think we're kind, we're kind of sort of seeing – there's a glimmer of that with No Time to Die and how Lasana Lynch has been presented, um, mm-hmm. that she's in combat gear – um, when you see the photos, they're very action orientated. So perhaps, hopefully, there'll be um, sort of more of a shift down that way as well. Um, so bringing we got a little bit off topic there. So going back to um, favorite characters of the eighties, I'm going to bring one up, which is um, probably going to be controversial, but I'm going to separate the actress's performance from the character and say Stacey Sutton. How dare you? Where's my delete button for (laughs) podcast? (laughs) So, but here's a woman who is fighting Zorin, Mm -hmm. you know, keeping her father's wishes, actually doing better than he did against him. Um, And for a large chunk of the film, Bond is basically her henchman. Mm -hmm. And she figures out the entire plot and does all the hard work. And yes, it's not a good look that she gets kidnapped by a blimp at the end, but you take that out. I think she's a very strong independent professional, as you pointed out, Lisa, in your intro. Mm-hmm. And had somebody else played it, I th- think her character in the series would have a better standing. Um, I, yeah, I, sorry, sorry, no, yeah. sorry, just to jump in there. I don't know if I agree there, because I think there's definitely some of that in Tanya Roberts's performance. And I think she's trying. I think that she's possibly given direction then to take it the other way. Because you see mm. her being as you, she is a geologist, you can you can sort of see her commanding conversation, um, but then also then suddenly she's screaming and cowering behind Bond. Mm. So I think it's it's kind of there, um, and of course then Tony Roberts went on to be in Charlie's Angels, so right. it's. It's like there's a capability, but it was just like she wasn't I, granted that. She wasn't allowed to be that person. I'm kind of with I'm with James here cause, uh, and um, also sort of Lisa and the, the summary of her being a sort of business um, force of nature. 
it's very strange. I mean, right, so I'm Team View to Kill. I'm famously, it's my favorite Bond film. I've got no problem saying that publicly or on any psychiatrist's chair. Yeah, and when, yeah. when you stand back and look at it, though, Tanya Roberts, uh, the casting is slightly... Lazy is the wrong word, um, but it's a slightly strange casting because you put Grace Jones, who's going to be stronger than life than anyone mm-hmm. else. And I know that Tanya Roberts was not, as is often the case, it's, and it's not a sign of a fault of the film or a fault of the script, she was not the first choice. There are other actresses. Uh, Priscilla Presley was one who, again, was would have possibly echoed that older Maud Adams... You know, I mean, obviously Priscilla Presley brings her own history to it, but sadly mm-hmm. she got sort of uh, contracted out to Dallas and Graceland, so uh, we didn't see it. But yeah, I kind of, I'm slightly with James here. It's she's she could be a stronger character, and she does just turn into Faye Ray, and I defend that because there's nothing more cinematic than you know the heroine tied to the tracks. But that's sort of that's sort of the dawn of cinema, not you know, 80, 90 years into it, which you took kill was. Um, but then I think, you know, would I change Tanya Roberts in that film? No, no. But she's she's not the strongest character and, and had perhaps a stronger actress just been in that role doing the same lines, the same the same blocking, the same beats. It could have, there could have been a different outcome. Sure. Quick point though, Charlie's Angels was four years before this. And the, the thing she had done right before View to a Kill was uh, a B action movie called Sheena, Queen of the Jungle. Mm-hmm. Like st- they might have seen her as somebody, you know, in, in the genre space. Um, but I, I, you know, the loudest stuff is what sticks in your memory afterwards. And, and whatever else she's got doing in that film, she's this girl in an elevator screaming, James, don't leave yeah. me. Like, was that on the table? Was that on the page? Like, did, did, did we really think James was going to leave her in a burning elevator? It 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 doesn't it doesn't help her character at all that they that they force her into these sort of shrill like damsel in distress moments. Um, and as 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 Mark says, you know, there's a cinematic uh, value to that narratively uh, in parts, but uh, just some 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 unfortunate choices that are made within within that casting that I think don't serve it in terms of legacy. Right. And I would say the shrill thing is definitely a turnoff for me. I mean, if I just mute the parts where she screams, I think her character is a lot stronger. Um, I mean, it's so piercing. It's like nails on a chalkboard level of piercing. But I also think that there's things that they could have done easy little tweaks to make her character a little bit better. So, for instance, it's something we noticed um Oh, what was it in her bedroom that was um, supposed to be like a signal that, you know, that there were sides, the birds, right? They could have literally just had these little moments that would have strengthened her representation as a geologist where she can sort of showcase her her body of knowledge. And I think that those moments would have strengthened um, our understanding of her intellectual role in in this film. And I think, you know, when she is going... um, with Bond into Zorin's little mine. It's not a little mine, into Zorin's mine. Uh, and she's wearing heels. And I get that there's the joke about women's lib, but it's so incredibly impractical to have her wearing stiletto heels going into a mine. Whereas I think, again, it's not her fault that she was put in stiletto heels, but there could have been a way for her to have also changed into work boots where you're like, okay, now she's in a place of action. Wow. We expect wow. her to do extra you know we expect her she's now sort of dressed and coded to do something in action it makes sense for her running you know and so i i feel as though they didn't actually like enable her in ways that they could they tried to but she refused to do it <gasps> really so that's why there's that little line when they come out the workman's shed 
and they've changed into their overalls where Roger says, oh, I see you found one that fits you now. Yep. It's because they did want to put her on work boots and overalls, but she refused to do it. She wanted a tight-fitting boiler Well, then I blame her. <laughs> yeah, okay. I take it back. Don't right blame now. you. I take back everything I just said because usually you don't have that much of a say, but like it just – it doesn't – how you're going incognito with like a form-fitting – who had – like you had a form-fitting outfit like right there with heel. Anyways – yeah. I think the fact that John Glenn left that line in there shows you how dissatisfied they were with that whole process. <laughs> and here we are talking about it 25 years later. 35 years later, holy cow. Um, so over the over the decade, um, you've mentioned a couple of the smaller players in the view to kill Lisa. Are there women characters in that decade that have maybe still slip under the radar or underappreciated or maybe missed opportunities. Yes. I would say I love Magda. I mean, I'm just going to throw it out there. I mean, I was obsessed with Magda growing up, Magda growing up um, the way that she descended from that bedroom with the little um, <laughs> rap. Like, I mean, I, I will learn how to do it. There will be a video. I'll probably hit the ground really hard. <laughs> can, but... we, can we go to the class together? Can that be a, like, a, a, <laughs> I, I, as a kid, I, we had open staircase and I would I would do it. I would wrap various cords with all the family's dressing gowns and try and do it. Like, seriously. All right. So yeah. in, the, in the post-pandemic meetup, it's going to be in the morning we're going to do the balcony thing. In the afternoon, we're doing jetpacks. Honestly, don't tease yeah. me about this stuff. Okay. We work on our cores to make any of this work. But it's interesting that, you know, that we have this this figure who is not the, the, the main or the leading woman, and yet she's capturing, you know, both Mark and I, like she's capturing our imagination. And I think that there's a lot that could have been developed there. And I would also throw in one of the things that I find really interesting about The Living Daylights was um, not just the depiction of Kara Malovi, because I, I truly believe in her relationship with Bond. It's probably one of the most believable. Like, I believe in their love, um, and I think she... She acted it brilliantly, and I think so did Dalton. Like, I could feel their chemistry. But there's the one scene when they were talking about her um, being a sniper, and they showcased different women in the background um, who were, you know, the best sort of uh, uh, Russian agents who were out there. And I really wish that we whatever that was like it's sort of like a like they keep just like flicking through the images and they give like a brief one line i wanted to learn more about those women like who are the who who's the the, the one who utilizes a teddy bear you know and and and, and sort of drags <laughs> in you know her prey and you know who's the one who can utilize her 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 strength and i think maybe her legs like maybe that's the zenya on a top like precursor but i find that really interesting that the russians would rely on women women made the best spies and what is the reason for it there's something about that that I really wish they expanded on and maybe sort of like took out a little, a couple of the other parts of like the film, you know, like there's, there's too many villains in that film. There's a lot of men, you know, show, showcase some of these women because I think it's an interesting element that we still haven't seen get developed um, uh, across the series yet. Maybe that'll yeah, be the next have, film. They could have had the other doubles knocked off by those women. Yes. Versus yeah. some gen- generic looking dude. At the start. Well, well, how yep. do you guys feel about um, the fact that Kara is so different from Trigger in the short story? Because um, obviously, because obviously, Trigger in the short story, she's there's there's no redemption there. She is just a Russian assassin. How do yeah. you guys feel about the fact that they changed that in the film? Well, um, you won't have heard it yet, Sean. But in last week's recording, we we basically worked out an entire stage production of The Living Daylights <laughs> with Trigger. <laughs> 
I, I don't know how, apart from having it, it, I think it would have turned into a East versus West Bond's mirror image. It would have been a, just a, a proper version of what they should have done with Anya Massiva, I think. Mm. It would have been the Spy Hill of Me kind of redux, I think. And it's interesting because, like, as you're talking, like, I'm thinking that it pulls then a lot from from Russia with love in the fact that, like, she's kind of sort of in on the plan, but she's not told the entire plan. And so she's sort of being, in a sense, misled, lied to, dragged around, used by by a whole bunch of men, you know, who are playing on her emotional state of, of, of being. Um, and that reminds me a lot of Tatiana Romanova and her representation. And so mm-hmm. I, I feel like they're not giving us a redo of the spy who loved me, but they're reaching really far back in terms of this 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 type of, of relationship. And so so then the question is, when she does find out, what does she do? And I was thinking about it this morning because she doesn't really hit a lot of people's radars. When we talk about women of the 80s and women being heroes, you know, we would say Pam Bouvier because Pam Bouvier is a heck of a lot more action oriented. She's flying, you know, the plane. She offers Bond backup in sort of a true partner in the field sense. And yet I'm thinking about Cara Malovi and she has a lot of those like, moments where she's supposed to seem very naive, you know, like we're free and like, I'm going to hug him on, 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 on the, on the, when he's, when he's driving the, the plane, whatever the cargo plane is. And yet at the same time, she also kind of, you know, holds her own. She finds her way to the car. She's going through the struggle. She, she drives onto a plane. Um, you know, there are moments where we're seeing a woman who is not trained. She's not a trained agent in any way, shape or form, you know, stepping up and, and in a sense, doing things that are way outside her comfort zone. And she's not screaming like Stacey Sutton doing them. Um, you know, she might be a little bit frustrating to to Dalton's bond, um, but also that's a very endearing part of their relationship because in relationships, your partners oftentimes annoy you. That 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 happens, and so I don't know. I'm I'm still trying to sort of figure out how I want to read her character. Where once she's in the know, she simply does take actions. And like, if it was me, like I have no training in martial arts, like not the greatest driver in the world. Like if I did those things, that would be pretty awesome. You know, that's a pretty heroic feat for somebody like me, a professor. You know, who really doesn't do much uh, in my day-to-day life. And so for her being a celloist who has zero background on any of this stuff, she definitely, I think, steps up to her capacity. And still, it is a Bond film and still Bond, you know, definitely does his thing. But, you know, I, I do we really expect that every single person and every single woman that he meets, especially if they're not an agent, are simply going to be able to pick up a gun and shoot? So I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how I feel about her in that film. How do you feel about um, the fact that she's not essentially given any resolution with Koskov at the end? Do you do you think it would have been better mm. if she was the one to um, bring about his comeuppance in a way at the end? Or do you think it's better that James Bond does that? Yeah, it feels unresolved because we do have instances in the past where women... Um, you know, Tatiana Romanova kills Rosa Klebb. She's the one that pulls the trigger. We've seen women who have been um, survivors Domino. of abuse. Domino is a really great example, pulling, you know, the harpoon uh, trigger. And because in that film, there are essentially two villains, 
Like, I think we could have an arg- argument about who the arch villain is and, and whatever's happening in that end scene. There really actually is space for her to have a moment and 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 sort of uh, be able to stand up and, and, and hold her own, whether she kills him, whether she smacks him, whether she tells him off, whether she's part of a plot, you know, like there there actually is a way to insert her in that moment for her to have that, in a sense, that character closure, but they choose not to go in that direction. And I think it's a really good question. Does that take away from her? Because I don't really feel like the end of that film really does much for Bond anyways. And and she's kind of left in that uh, towards the end. Of, well, and in the next time we see her, she's kind of like upset that Bond's MIA, right? Mm-hmm. So she doesn't even know at that point probably what's happened to Koskov and everybody else. Well, she despite, you know, despite the head of the secret services all being there having a party. <laughs> you know. she, she may not have the karate kicks or the agent skills. And that I, maybe that was just a, a conscious decision as well as the AIDS era stuff to make her less sexual. I mean, Bond doesn't, Bond still gets, he still sows his uh, 1987 oats in that film, um, particularly uh, in Gibraltar at the beginning. But what I like about uh uh, the character and Marion Darbo in the role, but it's, it's the first time or a rare time that we see the arts in a Bond movie. We see a musician, a cellist. We, mm-hmm. we've, we've never, I've always wondered why we haven't seen a ballerina, although there was that awful Darcy Bustle rumor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, way back. And all right, yeah, uh, Polo Ivanova allegedly did a bit of dancing, but I, you, you don't see sort of the, the, uh, the ballet, yes, a bit of opera, but I, I just, just like the fact that we had the arts in a bomb film, but that's just me. No, I, I'm with cello. you. I'm with you there. I love. I think the cello is my favourite instrument, and I think it's solely because I loved the Living Daylights as a kid, and I fell in love with that. It's almost the cello almost has a persona of its own. It's almost romanticised in that film, and I think that mm-hmm. definitely had an impact of me when I was growing up. And the, the character's strength, slightly, even though she's not defined totally one hundred percent with any sense of rounded uh, Bond women credentials, but she's really important to the, the, the Fleming intrigue of it. You know, the, so Bond suspects, you know, I, I think there's a strength in her character because it allows the strength of Bond's character to come out. And that's, that probably partly ties in with that. We believe Dalton and Darbo as this couple. I always say that it's such a shame in license to kill. We didn't get them back with their sort of uh, monogrammed uh, Ford Escort uh, car mascots with, you know, James and um, Cara in them. I'm too much of an 80s. I forgot. Uh, I totally forgot about that whole thing. Do you remember thing. those things? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I do. It'd be like Bob and Sharon would be yeah, a car. Yeah, in with their sort of the car. very dice, casino dice. Come on, come on. Um, yeah, so anyway, that's a lot of British uh, colloquialisms there in one um, statement. <laughs> but I, I can't... I, but yeah, I, I think she's maybe not the strongest character, but she allows a lot of strength of Bond's character, a strength of, of Fleming or allusions to Fleming and all of that. Um, so, uh, and as I say, I, I love the fact she's a cellist. And I had a poster on the back of my bedroom door. I had the world tour of Cara Malone's Carnegie Hall September 15th <laughs> poster, which, come on, I, I don't think there's many other kids that had cellists. You know, <laughs> Jacqueline Dupre was not a wall pinup at any point. And can we give her credit, um, uh, Marion Diabo? Because, I mean, she, like, loved the cello snow sequence, loved snow sequences. This is probably my favorite snow sequence. Like, she's, I've seen 
pictures. Uh, you know, you can see her engaging in that that chase. You can see sort of her face being sort of smushed up with air alongside Dalton and and the steering that's going on. I mean, I feel as though there was a high level of commitment to the role um, from the actor, and that's something I, I truly appreciate. Is that when she's called upon to do the things that the, that the film and the script are, are sort of putting out there that she definitely stood up. And I also think that Dalton doesn't get enough credit for his willingness to step up and try to do as, as much action oriented um, components of his films that he's kind of allowed to do. And I think that is, that is something that's really interesting. And I know that we look more to like the Brosnan era and of course the Craig era to, to, to see that realism, but it is there in the 1980s and it is there in the living daylights yes her, her her flat alone i remember thinking this with that sort of peter lamont dingy uh czech uh apartment she lives in it's so humble and it, you know there's no octopusy flourishes or even stacy roberts staircase uh, sorry stacy sutton staircase um yeah no i i, I think the the beauty of of Cara Malovia is, is that she's pared down and that, that it didn't totally fail because there was, a, as I say, the strength of Bond. Although you say there's one moment in Living Daylights that I just cannot unsee and it's when they uh, break into Austria and they go through the um, uh, the border control and there's nothing <laughs> to declare, no, nothing except a cello and there's that shot of, you can see the Dalton or a stuntman clearly moving and sat in the cello. <laughs> alongside him is a mannequin in a blonde wig. Yeah, and that's yeah. us on Mariam Darbo. You can literally see it bumping over. If you yeah. watch, watch the uh, reverse shot on that, it's like, oh my God. It's, and I can't unsee that. Um, yeah. And now our listeners cannot unsee it. <laughs> how do you feel, how do you guys feel about how Cara's costumed in that film? Well, she was sort of costumed. I mean, she's there's less flesh. Uh, all the flesh of Mariam Darbo was was sort of taken up in the promo and the, the publicity mm-hmm. shots, and then later her Playboy um, moments. Uh, and Mariam Darbo did, you know, she did do. She had a uh, more of a adult steered uh, modelling career as well before Bond, which was odd. So you don't see that in the film. Not that you know, I'm not complaining, but she. I, I always thought that blue dress that she gets given, or that, that whole ensemble um, uh, at um, Art Malik's place, was it was really she's really covered. That's that's so not a Bond uh, girl outfit. Yeah, but they're also the Mujahideen, so they're not really into the bikinis. Well, they were about to sell Kim Basing and not wearing much um, <laughs> well, four years before. That's- possibly possibly <laughs> but i like it i like the fact that she, her body is not um completely revealed and i like the fact that bond is attracted to her i mean it really helps to emphasize her personality her personability and her talent as a celloist, right? And the fact that she, I mean, what is attractive about her is the fact that she has a really great heart and she's a very loving and and loyal person in that respect. And I, I do like the fact that regardless of what context or where she's located, that her body isn't placed on display and that we see, we can read into some of her costuming. It's not only the yeah. 80s and the fact that things tend to, do, to be oversized, but we can read socioeconomic status and how things change as she moves through these spaces. So the fabrics might get better. Um, the stylization might get diff- might, might be different, but her body is never fully placed on display. And I, 
I kind of like that because, I mean, when we think about the women of Bond, oftentimes we have this idea that they are the object of the gaze, that they're presented as eye candy, that they're presented in in bathing suits, various states of undress. And again, as, as I sort of mentioned before, all this extra textual material that Marion Diavo did before Bond and, of course, in, in conjunction with this film, um, a lot of it is quite revealing. And so I do like the fact that though in the film, she she doesn't necessarily have those elements placed on on display. It actually helps me to better connect with Bond and 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 Malobi mm. as characters and their relationship. That it's based on something more than just say sex and sexuality, or yeah. or it's more than lust. Because oftentimes in the Bond film, it's it's lust that we see. It's not necessarily love, although the two of them get you know mixed together in, in a lot of media and, and people's imagination. So I actually really like yeah. it. The, the moment I know, the moment I buy their relationship in the film is when she makes him a warm martini, and he says, mm, "Perfect." <laughs> <laughs> yep. But um, researching this issue, we did um, on the eighties women. The, the the bit of trivia that I found in an interview with her, the really obscure one, was during the Playboy shoot. She's seen wearing a, a like a Blofeld style eye patch or a Largo eye patch, right, and holding a white cat. That cat is the granddaughter of the cat from the <gasps> volcano. What? Yes. So, so the cat that was like that traumatized, it clawed Donald Pleasance. Yeah. Yes. Say, yeah. Was- it is two generations of that down from the cat from the volcano. How amazing is that? What? Was it a female it was the, it was cat? Same, it was, yeah, it was the same animal handler that provided it. Well, you've got another point. woman of the 80s. I should go back and put her on that piece, I think. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I saw that issue of Playboy in a, mag- in a vintage magazine store not that long ago in San Francisco, and I nearly bought it, and then I thought, I, I really don't want to be the first gay guy that gets questioned at customs for a Playboy <laughs> magazine. So I, was like, I, I, got, I basically got cold feet, and I need to get some friends. Just, Can you go to buy it and post it to me, uh, just for collective reasons? Um and it was in pristine condition as well. But you you want to read it for the articles, right? <laughs> well, no, just I quite like the, the 80s-ness of the uh, front page and the um, twice-generation uh, pussy that's on offer. <laughs> <laughs> I meant, meant Blofeld cat. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, last, lastly to wrap up, uh, missed opportunities of the women of the 80s. And I want to kick this off and say... I've talked about this before. Carol Bouquet in Fury's Only, not one of my favorite performances, mostly maligned by the dubbing. Um, yes. sure. But they did. Cubby Rockley's first choice was Ornella Mooty mm. for that role, who plays the princess in Flash Gordon, which Flash Gordon, so many things got stolen from that film for Fury's Only, including Topol and everybody else, and Dalton later. Um, but I think she would have been great as the vengeful Melina sure. versus. Carol Bouquet. So that was my missed opportunity in the 80s. I, well, I'd love to see Priscilla Presley do it, although I, I probably ultimately prefer Tanya Roberts. Um, one, one in a, just, I don't want to take us off into two times, but I do want to get a mention in of Countess Liesel, who I think is one of the best Bond mm. characters, let alone the best Bond women. And yes, she's not in it for long, and she's a, an early template, I feel, for Octopus and what Maud Adams does in the following film, and her timeline's linked to you know, her husband and who, who, she, who, uh, what he brought to the Bond timeline. But I've always liked Liesel and the, the, the Manchester Liverpool accent, which sounds like neither accent, by the way. Um, <laughs> I've, I've, I've always liked her. 
in New Jersey, it sounded perfect. Northerners never end well in the Bond series. <laughs> no, so. they're either allergic to chicken or... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Morecambe's only moments in cellular history. <laughs> Do you think that Carla is a victim, or Cara, sorry, is a victim of, of, at that point, this sort of this lost puppy, bird with a wing down thing that Fleming loved to do with women, which is sort of not fitting so much anymore. And and the series, in fact, kind of just, there's this, how do I want to put it? There's, there's this uh, goldfish memory, I guess, about so, so many Bond women where they're like, well, this one's Bond's equal and she's not like the other Bond girls. And, mm-hmm. and like generationally, it seems we have to keep re-remembering that. But the franchise also keeps having to re-remember that sometimes. When, <laughs> or it will throw you these, these sort of like hapless gals like Halle Berry is literally like almost tied to train tracks in Die, Die Another Day mm-hmm. you know she's she's supposed to be this super competent competent American agent and she's nevertheless like it's like silent movie level damsel in distress stuff where she's tied down and about to be killed um how how do we break out of that loop right where where we we oh here here's a very strong woman oh and here's a woman who bond has to save or fails to save kind of thing. we we go back in time and stop Kerry lowell saying it at the premiere in 1989 because it's so i'm i'm a match for bond like it was good I'm like, and even then we're like no 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 don't say that even if it's true <laughs> it. and then they what's beautiful about the bond promo circuit which is particularly that launch when we have the the, the launch moment of a new bond you will get probably a leading lady saying it and you just know that it's going to be the absolute opposite of it mm-hmm. um, but, although I, th- you know, I think with Madeline Swan her potential you know she's not a match for Bond but psychologically she might be and there's you know more to more narratively to come um but yeah, why does a, a character that's stronger or as strong as Bond have to be Bond? That's sort of the series dilemma. Although I think in perhaps recent times we've had really strong, uh, you know, how Vespers portrayed by Eva Green particularly, um, and Madeline Swan. I know she's sometimes a bit morose and miserable in the film, but they, there's reasons for that. I think one way that we break the cycle is by having more women in creative positions writing these stories and conceptualizing them from the outset. That's how you break the cycle because there's so many images and I'm going to bring up Waylon because I can and I love Michelle Yeoh, but like why does she need to be tied up, thrown underwater and Bond has to save her, giving her mouth to mouth, which doubles as their first kiss. There's a way of actually having that film where Bond can still be Bond, Bond can still save the day, but it doesn't have to be at the expense of a strong, empowered woman beside him. She could be giving him back up for uh, pressing a different button. Like there's ways of, of presenting women where you don't have to you know, build them up or, or, or have this idea that we're going to build them up, but then present them as needing to be rescued or saved in every single film by Bond. I think that takes away from, from women. Um, and I don't like the idea that Bond has to be elevated for a woman to be brought down. And I always bring up, you know, the, the Patty Jenkins Wonder Woman as, as, as my example, mm. where like Wonder Woman is Wonder Woman. She's kind of badass, but Chris Pine's character is also really interesting. And, and he's, he's heroic in his own way. And I love the film because the two of them get to be really awesome, strong characters. They both do their own thing. 
and it's Wonder Woman, you know, like, and, and that's okay. So why is it okay to have, you know, a strong woman with a great sidekick, with a great co-hero man as a partner, but we can't do the same and represent women in that way? Why do we have to take away from them to bolster him? And I think it's, 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 it's really the scale metaphor for equality, which I find so problematic because when we think of a scale, in order to elevate one, you have to bring down the other. And so whether it's about presenting men as heroic, elevating men, it usually means bringing down women. Or even when we think about, you know, the, the conversations about feminism and and, 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 and equity in, in a broader sense, it's always this idea that people feel like if we bring up women, if we bring up LGBTQIA plus communities, if we bring up racial minorities, that means that we have to bring down those who are in positions of privilege rather than saying this is what equity means let's make sure that everybody is elevated up to that place and elevated to that space so i don't like i I hate this idea that we have to bring someone down in order to bolster or bring somebody up and it's something that gets replicated not only in bond this is not just a bond thing this is a cinematic history and, and 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 when we think about like within that cinematic history the representation of heroism this is just a frequent representation that i think is troublesome so maybe if we change the people who are designing these stories um or adding other voices in those creative environments we can start to really sort of pop some of these bubbles and really showcase you know a, a lot of people doing a lot of really great heroic things without taking away from from one person and usually it's somebody who's who's a, a part of a marginal or minority group um that they're the ones uh, who the hero rises at their expense. Everyone's concerned. Well, not everyone isn't concerned, just some vocal mi- minority about Lashana Lynch's role and involvement in Bond. And that you, you've, you, mm. you've got it right there. And in fact, what you just said, Lisa, applies. I, I see it applies to LGBT rights where, you know, if, if, if I get marriage rights, that doesn't mean you get less marriage rights. It's not mm-hmm. a cake. It's not a pie. If I get a bit, that doesn't mean you get less. And I think that's you can apply that to yeah you know, the discussion and the the the, the yeah you know, the the paranoia this weird fictional paranoia about an actress in a film no one's seen yet Lashana Lynch goes like oh we can't have her being whatever character because that will take away from Bond and I'm like well no no it's not one or the other I will say that in Bond's defence that its cake is slightly cut differently so it would. Be, I, I don't know if it would be too much of an overbalance, and I hope this isn't just me being sort of alpha male saying this, of of going there and having all those uh, stronger women, all those women who have strength in their insecurities as well. Because you know, a strong woman is not just Fiona Volpe or Fatima Blush in the Bond film. It, I, I think actually you could say a strong woman is to a degree Cara Malovi. Um, mm-hmm. We'll debate that further another time. Um but I, I feel Bond, the Bond templates, like the Fleming template, the Doctor No template, is is just slightly cut differently. But we haven't seen No Time to Die yet. Um, there is a potential. Like Feels today, like we have. Say again. <laughs> Feels like we have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not on Boxing Day again on ITV this Christmas. Yeah. Um, but um, we don't know what uh, Phoebe Waller Bridge. Again, someone that a few have panicked to buy. I, I, yeah. I watch Fleabag and uh, other stuff she's written. Utterly in expectant joy that she's involved in a bomb film because she's one of the, the world's best most mm-hmm. punchy and economic writers. The fact she's a woman has got zero to do with it. But I, I would love to, I can't wait to see what she does. Plus that, you know, those yeah. support ensemble, whether it's you know, Naomi Harris, uh, Anna De, De Armas, uh, painting of Judy Dench, whatever, you know, where it's might still be cut differently. I think it's got scope to be cut differently, but it's Bond is, 
everyone assumes Bond is a recipe that where we can change a lot of ingredients. And I think ultimately sometimes it isn't. I was going to say two point Lisa, about um, the balance. Um, I think you'd be pleasantly surprised at No Time to Die yeah. and, and how they do it without dragging somebody else down, especially at the end. Um, but if we look at the two films in the series that are universally, well, not universally, um, <laughs> how to phrase this without pissing somebody off who doesn't agree. Um, two films that float to the top of a lot of Bond fans, which is Casino and Majesties. They are both two films with very dominant female performances in them. And it's very much a co-star, Bond and the leading lady, and their favorites. So you can do it in the formula. It's totally doable. And they're still so Bond films, And right? they're still Bond films. Yes. Yeah. That's my point. Yeah. And I get, I get the idea that the cake is cut a little differently. Like a Bond film is about James Bond. Like no, there's no other way, just like a Superman film is about Superman and a Wonder Woman film is about Wonder Woman. Um, and so I expect them to to come across as being very heroic. But yeah, I think it is that question of, of you know, you can have a partner without taking away from them. And I think the, the only problem with those two examples is that both women die at the end. <laughs> so like, you know. <laughs> Something in common there. <laughs> but but they are, I would say, when I talk to people, you know, who who's your favorite, you know, woman of Bond? It's Vesper Lynn and Tracy DiVincenzo. Like, because they are well-rounded, multifaceted characters who have character arcs, who have their own trials and tribulations, that they're not simply defined by Bond or, you know, as sort of like a helpmate to Bond. They have their own stuff going on. Um, and I think people just really like the fact that these women are, and, and the, these women are represented in different ways. You know, Tracy is a lot more action-oriented oriented than Vesper Lind, right? And yet both of them have been able to capture the hearts of, of Bond fans because they're compelling. And that's really what I what I want to see. These are compelling women who challenge Bond in a variety of ways. I just wish that, you know, we would have maybe another Bond woman who does it and survives the film. Like I'm I'm let's let's go for that. <laughs> That'll be my that's our next rung. <laughs> right, we'll we'll find out, won't we, in twenty twenty one or twenty twenty two whether they finally get there or not. Ish. Yes. Ish. <laughs> All right. I think that's a good note to end on. So thank you very much, Mark, Sean, Phil, and Lisa. And Sean, you got through it. Yay. Thank you very much. And I hope I didn't put my foot in my mouth too much. So thank you. No. For, <laughs> thank you for listening to me. <laughs> Absolute pleasure to have you on. And we'll see you all next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.